This is Perspectives, the show where an examination of our many differences often shows us how much we have in common. I'm Condis Presley. A little over a year ago, America lost the greatest of all time. You know, Muhammad Ali. Not only was he the greatest, he was the prettiest. He was the strongest. He was the bravest. I mean, that's what he told us. Ali has been the subject of books, movies, documentaries. But not until now has he been the subject of a complete, unauthorized biography. Jonathan Icke, a man the great documentary filmmaker Ken Burns is calling a master storyteller, tackles the challenge of understanding a deeply complicated man. His book is simply called Ali, A Life, and it would make a great gift to one of the favorite people in your life. Now the reporter and biographer of Muhammad Ali, Jonathan Icke, joins us. So, what inspired you to write about Muhammad Ali? I mean, wasn't his story already well-documented? I was a huge fan as a kid. I had his poster on my wall, and I loved the guy. But, you know, as you get older, you realize his story is about so much more than boxing. He, he, it's about race. It's about religion. It's about war. And it's about who we are as a country. You can see so much of Ali and so much of this country in his story. And um, the fact that nobody had yet written the full-blown biography. There have been a lot of terrific books about him, but... They were either approved by the by the by the Ali brand, or they were books that just took a small piece of his life. I wanted to see if I could dig in deep and talk to everybody and tell the whole life story. Was it easy to talk to everybody? I mean, it's called an unauthorized biography, but I read you you did hundreds of interviews. Yeah, I did probably five or six hundred interviews, Whoa. and I got everybody to talk to me. All of his wives, his brother, the men he fought in the ring. Um, just about everybody, Don King, Louis Farrakhan, they all talked eventually, but it was not easy um, because I'm coming at this independently. I'm not being paid by the Ali company to do it, and that means that I'm going to tell the truth. And then what I said to these guys is that, you know, Ali deserves the truth. He doesn't deserve some cleaned up, prettified version of his life story. I think we can handle a few of his flaws and still appreciate the man for being the great hero that he was. So everybody was open to cooperating with you, right? You just said that. Eventually, Eventually. yeah. It took a little so arm who, twisting. Who's, who's, whose arms did you have to twist, can you, can you say? Or are you just <laughs> glad that they finally opened up and were willing to do well, the interview? Well, Don King was a tough one to get. Um, really? Yeah. He's just, you know, he, first time I called him, he said, I'm busy. I'm, I'm, I'm fixing Middle East peace. You know, I'm working on that. And I said, okay, well, when you get that done, how about we'll talk? Um, eventually, you know, I, what I tried to impress was that this is a, a story that's going to be the most comprehensive book about Ali, and, and these guys want to be in it. I, I told them that, you know, the story wouldn't be complete without them, and, and that was certainly true for Ali's wives, his brother. Um, his brother was, was a tough one to, to, to convince to talk to. But Tell us more. Well, he wanted to, he, he's, not, he's not doing too well. He's, he's, he's got some uh, brain damage, and he's living in poverty. He lives in Louisville and um, is on food stamps and welfare, and it was tough. You know, he, he wanted to be paid to be to, for the interview, and I told him that I don't pay for interviews, but I took him out for dinner and I took him out for lunch and I uh, just got him to, you know, feel comfortable talking to me after a while. And, um, and you know, he, he feels like his story hasn't really been told the way it should be because um, the people around Ali, um, the, his wives and, and his managers kind of took over and um, he wanted his story heard eventually. Which could be another book. Yeah, maybe Rachman's story will be next. Did you talk to the kids? Some of them, yes. Some of them, no. Um, I interviewed, I think, three out of the uh, out of the, the nine kids from his marriages, and um, you know, they, they some of them again are trying to write their own books, so they didn't want to talk. But um, they were they were 
it was interesting because they did not have easy childhoods, um, as as is so often the case for kids growing up with celebrities. You know, they felt like the world got to to spend got to see him, but they didn't get to see him as much as they wanted to, and he wasn't around as much as they would have liked. So, five to six hundred interviews of all the people you talked to. What was the most surprising thing that you that you learned? You know, in a funny way, Ali was humble. Like this guy who goes around calling himself the greatest all the time, um, who had you know just endless um, ego. In a, in a strange way, he was humble. He was humble before God, first of all. He really believed that God was going to judge him and, and that he had sinned a lot in his life and he had to atone for those sins later. But he also just treated the guy on the street um, as if he were an equal every time. You know, he's not just somebody who would sign autographs. He would sign an autograph and then welcome you into his home for dinner. And he might become your friend for life. He really just saw people as, um, even though, you know, he was a superstar and a celebrity and he was rich, um, he never really acted like he was better than other people. And you started working on this before he passed away, isn't that Yeah, correct? that's right, several years before. What do you think made him special? You know, that's, to me, in some ways, the, the most important question. Dick Gregory said to me when I interviewed him, if you're going to write this book, you better figure out why a kid growing up in the segregated South in the 1940s and 50s felt like he could be special. What made him think that he could be different, that he could stand up and speak back to power at a time when you weren't supposed to do that if you were, were, were uh, African-American? And I think it was a couple of things. One, he grew up in an abusive family. He was dyslexic, so he felt like he had these odds stacked against him. But when he discovered boxing, he found like this almost this superpower that it, boxing was this different universe. In the boxing ring, black and white kids could fight. In the boxing ring, white people were interested in helping him. Um, he was trained by a white police officer. White police officers were not usually your friend growing up in his neighborhood. So he discovered that boxing gave him a chance to break the rules, and he loved breaking the rules. There's a fair amount of original reporting in your book, things that most of us didn't know before. What can you share? So many um, things about Ali that, that we didn't know, um, starting even with his ancestry, his his grandfather was a convicted murderer. Um, his great-grandfather was a slave. Um, people didn't know that. Even Ali didn't know about his grandfather's murder conviction. That's all brand new. But um, even, you know, things that are more recent um, were surprising to me. For example, um, George Foreman told me that, that um, he was drugged before the fight in Zaire, the Ali-Foreman fight, the, the, the rumble in the jungle. Um, Foreman is convinced to this day that his own manager drugged him before that fight. Um, Ali failed a drug test of his own after the uh, Larry Holmes fight. I mean, I think people people who think they know the Ali story are going to read this book and they're going to realize that on every page there's something that they didn't know. I was really surprised to read when you talk about the boxing, key component of the Ali story. You looked at the number of punches he threw and the number of punches he took. There's a really big difference. Yeah, that was shocking to me too because... Some people would say he's the greatest boxer of all time. We can argue all day about that, but he was certainly one of the greatest. And yet, in the second half of his career especially, he's getting outpunched dramatically. And, you know, this uh, strategy that he was kind of famous for, the rope-a-dope, where he would just let his opponents hit him until they got tired, well, that was a disastrous strategy. Um, it really only worked once against George Foreman, and as a result of that, Ali took hundreds and hundreds of punches that he didn't have to. And, and late in his career, he thought that if he allowed himself to be hit, he would build up resistance to it. So he would have his sparring partners just practice teeing off on him and hitting him in the head. 
and um, you know that's not good for you. And unfortunately, I think it it it's, it it contributed to I, his illness. I think it definitely did. Wow. Let's talk a little bit about Ali and his religion, because of course we all know he was born as Cassius Clay, and then when he converted to Islam, he changed his name to Muhammad Ali, and he is one or was one Muslim American who seemed to live successfully in both worlds. That's right, and it was an interesting journey because he was raised a Christian, and when he discovered the nation of Islam, he announced that that was just a religion given to him during slavery, that his family didn't have a choice about it. Now that he had a choice, he didn't want any part of it, and he embraced the nation of Islam. But the nation of Islam was really more about race than it was religion at that time. Um, and you know, Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad were using the, the, the story of Islam to really work on how they can empower black people in this country to be more independent. And over time, Ali moved away from the nation of Islam and discovered Orthodox Islam and became deeply religious, um, really began to study the Quran and traveled around the world telling um, Muslims that America was a good country and then trying to convince Americans that they shouldn't be afraid of, of Islam. In reading the story about Ali and and the many historic moments in his life, as we pause, I'm thinking about his conversion, his decision not to fight in Vietnam. And then I fast forward in my brain and I think about Colin Kaepernick and his protest of racial injustice and police brutality today. What do you think Ali would think about that? I think he'd be right there by Kaepernick's side. And if you think Kaepernick is hated right now or getting a hard time, Man, Ali was 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 way worse. He was probably the most hated man in in America. Certainly among white people, he was the most hated man because not only did he say, "I'm joining this this group that uh, the Nation of Islam that the FBI labeled a terrorist organization," then he said he wouldn't fight in the war in Vietnam. So he was labeled a traitor on top of that. And uh, you know, he was banned from boxing for three and a half years and stripped of his heavyweight crown, lost millions of dollars. I think he'd be right there marching with Kaepernick and saying that. What was the point of him standing up and taking that stance? You know, he stood up and said, black athletes can be their own, stand up for themselves. They can speak back to power. They don't have to be what you want them to be. And Kaepernick and these other athletes are saying the same thing. And their owners are saying, no, just keep your mouth shut and play. I think Ali would be furious about that. Those decisions then, is that why his trainer ended up being recruited by the the Bureau, the FBI, to spy on him? Yeah, Angelo Dundee and Chris Dundee, his trainers, were recruited by the FBI to give them information about who was coming around, which members of the Nation of Islam were hanging around Ali. And it's because America was afraid. They really believed that the Nation of Islam was intent on destroying America. And they saw it as a real threat. They saw Malcolm X as a real threat. And Malcolm X was hanging around with Muhammad Ali. So I was able to get Muhammad Ali's FBI files for the first time. And uh, it's interesting because they showed that the FBI really didn't Just fear Just by filing the Freedom of Information Act? Yeah, it took a couple of years of waiting, but filing a Freedom of Information Act request. The files show that they weren't really afraid of Ali, that they didn't think he was posed any danger, but they were terribly afraid of the Nation of Islam. And they were afraid that if Ali was al- allowed to get away with avoiding service in Vietnam, then black Americans were going to sign up in droves for the Nation of Islam, and then they would be unable to, to find enough um, soldiers to fight the war. And you write that Ali felt as if he did not do right, as they say, by Malcolm X. Yeah, that was one of the, there were several moments in researching this book where I felt disappointed in Ali, and that was one of them. Malcolm X was his great friend, really an important mentor, taught him about black power, taught him about 
taking a stand and using your position to, to, to try to change the world. And then when Malcolm decided he was going to leave the Nation of Islam, he asked Ali to come with him. And Ali said, no, I'm loyal to Elijah Muhammad. And then when it appeared that Malcolm X might be assassinated, Malcolm's wife begged Ali to help, said, save his life, you know, stand up for him, tell them to call off the, 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 the hit. And Ali walked away, he turned his back on Malcolm, and he regretted it later, but um, it was too little too late. In fact, Ali was pretty cruel. He said that he thought Malcolm deserved to die. Let's talk a little bit about Ali's health. So we know that he was diagnosed with Parkinson's. We've already talked about your reporting that indicated he took more punches than he actually gave. While after his death, his brain was not examined for potential CTE, you did some research that looked at his speech patterns before his passing, and what did you learn from that? Yeah, I, I looked at Ali's speech rate. You know, normal person does not lose any of their speaking rate or their speaking ability when they're in their 30s and 40s. But Ali, from age 30 to age 40, when he was still fighting, lost 26% of his speaking rate. So that would be syllables per second. And um, you can see it after certain fights when he gets hit a lot. You see this sharp drop off in his ability to speak. And if you just go on YouTube tonight or when you get home, do Ali uh, talk show 1970 and Ali talk show 1980 on YouTube and you'll see the difference. It's dramatic. He's really starting to mumble, slur his words um, and just speaking much more slowly. And he, he became aware of it. He began asking his friends, do you think I got brain damage? And he kept fighting anyway. Why? Money. Really? Yeah, he, he probably earned about $70 million during his fighting career, but he, he kept none of it. He, he blew it through it. He had ex-wives to support, children to support, and he just gave it away. He was very generous, and he was very gullible. He had bad business managers, never saved for the future, um, and got into a bunch of really shady business deals because he wasn't really concerned about it. He just trusted these people around him. So. Ali, A Life would be a great book for young athletes to read who have goals of being professional and successful to learn from Ali's mistakes so that they don't make them when they strike it rich. Yeah, learn from his mistakes, but also learn from his courage because he had the power and he decided to use it. And a lot of people, um, when they when they get rich, when they get famous, they just want to um, talk about themselves and they don't think how they can help make this a better place to live. Talk to us about sitting down and interviewing his wives three wives you had a chance to visit with. Right. Obviously more than just the one interview. Once you developed the relationship, gained the trust, and, and got them to sit with you. Tell us about that. Yeah, they all still love him. You know, his first wife passed sure. away um, before I could before I started on the book, but his second and third wives, um, you could tell for all the, 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 the troubles they had, for all the pain that they went through in their marriages, they still loved him. They lit, they lit up when they talked about him. And, and one of them said to me, you know, it was just impossible to be in a bad mood when you were around that guy. He was just like a happy drug. He was just so full of joy. And, and um, you know, they got angry with him sometimes. He cheated a lot. He wasn't home when he should have been home. He didn't help take care of the kids, um, never learned how to change a diaper. Um, and that kind of nine stuff. Nine kids and never, never learned nine how to change kids a diaper? Yeah, I hate to say well, I guess it. He, had, he could pay somebody to do that, right? I guess so. But he just assumed that that was the wife's work. And, um, you know, th that gets old after a while for the women. And, um, and yet... I think they all still loved him. It's pretty. One of them, one of his wives, said to me, "You know how hard it is to to move on and try to find another man after you've been married to Muhammad Ali. It's not easy." And you wrote that the Nation of Islam had him to divorce her. Why? Because she wouldn't accept 
the Nation of Islam's teachings. She wouldn't dress in the conservative fashion that she was supposed to. She wouldn't change her name. And, and she um, told Ali that she thought the religion was a load of hooey, and uh, they didn't like that. And, you know, it's it's tough because Ali really loved her. And I have it's hard for me to understand um, having to choose between your religion and and your and the, the spouse that you love, but he, he was forced to make that choice, and he chose his religion. So, in case you're just joining us, we're talking to the author Jonathan Eig. He's got this great book that's out now. Wonderful gift for someone who loves to read and loves Muhammad Ali. It's Ali, a life. And there's one story that you've got in the book, Jonathan, about. And you go way back to 64 in the Sonny Liston fight. Give us a little bit of that. You know, this fight was expected to be a murder. Ali was going, had no chance against Sonny Liston. Liston was the heavyweight champ who just knocked out his opponents in a matter of seconds. And he was big and strong and scary. And Ali was this young kid. He was 22 years old. He had, had won the Olympic gold medal, but... Um, People didn't think he had a, he, he was a serious heavyweight because he was too too quick, too fast, didn't hit hard. And um, you can see as soon as he gets in the ring with Liston, and, and he's he's talking trash to Liston before the fight, and everybody says, what's he doing? He's just going to make him mad. He's, he's going to get killed in there. Um, but as soon as the fight starts, Ali comes out, and he's, he's so fast that Liston can't hit him. And Liston's throwing these giant punches and missing and starting to get tired, and then Ali starts popping that jab, and, and, and Liston's can't get out of the way, and then Ali starts throwing combinations, and, and they're all landing, and you could just see the look on Sonny's face, like, oh, I'm in trouble here. <laughs> and uh, by the end of the sixth round, Liston won't get off his stool. He quits. Um, some people question whether that fight was fixed. Um, some people think both Liston fights might have been fixed, but um, no one has ever proved it. Um, I found some interesting clues, but I still can't prove one way or the other. Really? Yeah, I found a secret contract that Ali's management team signed that said that uh, Liston was guaranteed a rematch. So Liston knew, even if he lost, that he'd get another shot. Help my memory. Did that rematch ever happen? Yeah, so they did fight again, and then Liston lost again, um, and lost very quickly in the first round. Some people think that he took a dive in that second fight because he went down so fast. So what do you think? Do you think that the contract that you couldn't find maybe really did exist? Um, I think that... um, Liston knew that he that he didn't ha- have to get off the stool, that he was going to get another shot at Ali. And in the second fight, I don't know. I think Liston took a dive, but I can't prove it. Why do you think that this story that you tell, and you tell it so well, is relevant and resonates among readers today? I think Ali's story is more about much more than boxing. It's really about race, and it's about what black people can do in this world to change their conditions, to change the world that's presented to them. And Ali is important because he said, I don't have to take the world the way I find it. His father told him that he could never be rich, he could never be famous because he was black. And Ali just decided that his father was wrong. And the media told him to keep his mouth shut and stick to boxing. And Ali said, no, I don't have to. And he stood up to power. And that's obviously still something that (laughs) we need to see today. Pretty terrific role model, you would say, right? Yeah, uh, not perfect, but that's okay. Our heroes don't have to be perfect. They just have to be heroic. And he was indeed a flawed man and a, fl- a flawed character. Yeah, but that to me makes him all the more important because, you know, we turn our heroes into into saints. We're not really being realistic. We can't expect people to be, be perfect, but we can expect them to stand up for what they believe in. I want to go back to this business about Ali, the Nation of Islam, and then 
truly becoming devout in his faith and his religion. He passed away before the 2016 election. What would he make of politics today in Donald Trump's America based on what you now know and all of the reporting and all of the people that you've met who were in his life? Well, he believed really, really strongly that um, we needed to be tolerant of, of one another. And in fact, he did weigh in on Trump. When Trump was a candidate for president and he proposed a ban on Muslims, Ali tweeted that that was un-American, that Muslims are not all terrorists and they should be welcome here just like everyone else. And uh, he called out Donald Trump during the campaign. So I think we know what he would be saying right now. He'd be, he'd be standing up and fighting like he did before. Maybe he'd go toe-to-toe with the president tweet for tweet, huh? I'd like to see that. What do you want readers to take away from the book? I want readers to see that Ali was complicated, but I also want them to see that, that he stood up for what he believed in. He, he knew he wasn't perfect, but he trusted his guts. He believed that, he, that, that the reason that it's not just enough to gain fame and to gain power if you don't do something with it. And all his life, he took on the biggest issues that, that, that he could and the biggest issues that mattered the most to this country. He fought against the war in Vietnam. He fought for religious freedom. And he fought to prove that black people didn't have to be the way white people wanted them to be. And uh, I think that's why he matters today. The book is Ali, A Life. The author is Jonathan Eig, author of many other books. I didn't mention them, but once you read this, we're going to pick up everything else you've done. Thank Luckiest you. Man, Opening Day, you've written for The New York Times, The New Yorker, Esquire, The Washington Post, and continue to serve as a contributing writer to The Wall Street Journal, right? That's right. All right. And when is the documentary coming out? I mean, not everybody gets to work with Ken Burns, but apparently you are. I'm very excited about that. Ken Burns is beginning work just now on a documentary about Ali, and we're shooting for 2020. That would be awesome. Jonathan Ike, thank you so much. Congratulations. Thank you. Perspectives is a half hour we produce with you in mind. If there's something you think we ought to be talking about, let me hear from you. Tweet me, my handle is Condo29 on Twitter, or leave a message on our Facebook page. We do appreciate your listening and hope you'll be back next week at this same time as we examine another perspective. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.